Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. And I cannot tell a lie. It's the most beautiful spring I've ever spent in the Mojave. My first springtime in Joshua Tree as a camper and not a resident was back in 1983. And it was hot and smoggy. Like it is too often, but especially back then when the thick brown soup of Los Angeles air shared the blessing with much of the surrounding desert until you got out around Baker and Shoshone. And here we are in the year 20 and 20. The songbirds and the wildlife are thrilled. They seem thrilled anyway, the cottontails gorging on grass and wildflowers, coyotes singing all night, great clouds of honeybees drifting by, the skies otherwise silent, and deep, deep blue. Uh, There have been days and days of mild Pacific fronts making it across the mountains, over the mountains, immense fluffy clouds of silver and white, everything blooming and green on the ground as you don't often get in the desert. And just outside the Desert Oracle studio, the Desert Bunker, The bunnies are growing up quick, and the gambles quail are calling, and the big lizard is back, strolling around the patio like some kind of gorilla. A thick lizard. The roadrunner from across the road is here all the time now. In fact, all the creatures from across the road are over here all the time, because nobody's really driving on the road. Except for the trash trucks once a week. And to the trash truck and recycling truck drivers, I say thank you for your service, as we do these days. The rock squirrels and the antelope ground squirrels are just sort of lounging in the road. Why not? It's a shame it took a global pandemic and a worldwide societal and economic collapse into belligerent inept nationalism to get us here, but you know, it shows us what is possible. I know a lot of people are itching to get back on the treadmill, get back into traffic, back into those mile-long TSA lines for pleasure flights to San Francisco or New York or Iceland or wherever. The most polluting form of travel. The most dangerous to our very existence. 
Well, maybe to hell with all that. How about we stop? Maybe we aren't going to have a choice. The thing about this pandemic is nobody knows when it will end. Nobody. Not me, not you, not Dr. Fauci, the sexiest man alive. Not the guy on the news with the nipple rings. Why do all those guys have nipple rings? Well, it turns out they're part of an ancient generational cult. The symbol of which is, of course, nipple rings. Like some sort of eunuchs from the royal court at Byzantium. Deeply weird people. The nipple rings aren't the half of it. You ever read Philip K. Dick? I've been reading Philip K. Dick for 40 years now. I started, like a lot of people back then, with the paperback book that said Blade Runner on the cover. The movie tie-in. And a strange true fact is that, as a high school student who reviewed movies for the school paper which I also edited because I'm a lifelong glutton for punishment. I got a ticket to see a special preview of a new science fiction movie by Ridley Scott, the dude who made Alien. And it had Harrison Ford from the Star Wars as a Philip Marlowe sort of character in a trench coat. And so I went to see it at the old Cinema 21 in San Diego, Mission Valley, a big screen 1960s or 70s theater off by itself in a parking lot by the tourist motels for the people from Arizona who fled to foggy San Diego beaches to escape the Phoenix summer heat. So I see this movie, what would become known in the lore as the San Diego Cut, or San Diego Preview, which was never seen anywhere else again, lost to history. They had us fill out a little card afterwards to let the studio executives know what we thought of it. I thought it was fantastic and weird and that it looked a lot like the Los Angeles I knew at the time. Smoky and doomed and exotic and violent. Who knew that in the real 2019, the skies would be relatively clear in L.A.? And that by 2020, there would be very little pollution at all because everything had come to a halt. Who knew that our world... Our dirty and decaying and unsustainably cruel world would end like that. The movie Blade Runner was based on a book by Philip K. Dick, a little-known pulp sci-fi writer who died shortly before being around to experience his big break. Even though the movie was sort of a flop at the time, it was a big Hollywood production. Only later did it become a classic. The original novel was called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? 
And I'd never read anything by him and never heard of him until then. I mean, I was 16 years old. Still getting acquainted with Bradbury and Asimov, the big names, Heinlein. The movie took the title from a William S. Burroughs screenplay called Blade Runner. So they paid Bill Burroughs something for that weird acquisition, I suppose. Writers struggle and executives print little cards to give to the audience. Please tell us what you did not like. Does it need a disco song, maybe? More nudity? Some humping? It already had the voiceover by the time I saw it. And I like that voiceover just fine. Because I was just seeing stuff like the Maltese Falcon. In my American literature class. I know some people prefer the version without it. Anyway, no one can ever see the San Diego preview because it was one cut and then it got recut and that's that. But there are a few scenes that I recall, a few little things that I've never been able to find in all the various versions on the various home video sets. Anyway, I did not begin the Philip K. Dick immersive reading until many years later, a bit after 911. I had left Los Angeles for Reno by then, and boy, things just felt wrong. Empty, dystopian, grim, dull, horrific. And so I read one PKD paperback after another. Eventually collecting just about all of them. All the novels. Most of the short stories. Biographies. During this time, I read Robert Anton Wilson, too. Especially Cosmic Trigger, because he and I had both worked for the same online magazine for a while in the late 1990s. It was called Getting It. It was funded by a porno guy in Florida, edited by Are You Serious from Mondo 2000. And Matt Honan, now at BuzzFeed. And if all that sounds nuts, it's because it was a good kind of nuts. I was reading all kinds of religious stuff after 911 2. Hammadi, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And it felt like I'd finished one weird collection of ancient religious documents, and then the next Phil Dick novel would be about those very things, more or less. And all that is to say that I believe those of us who read a lot of Philip K. Dick can never be surprised by the madness and banality of the modern world. We are prepared. We cannot be shocked. The shock doctrine only works on those who believe things were normal at some point, which they were not. 
America has never been normal. Not for an instant. Now, I never cared much about the plots or how realistic the dialogue was supposed to come across or whatever. That's not why I read fiction. And I mostly don't read fiction anymore because I don't believe it. I don't believe any work of fiction or poetry or screenplay or lyrics that didn't come down like a hammer out of the sky and wallop some poor sap right in the head. I don't believe false prophets. I don't believe the ones who make it up. I don't believe anybody on the TV, on the internet, on paper, on the radio, unless I have the strong feeling that they are telling the truth because they have no choice in the matter. Just this week, I saw somebody post an episode that we did late last year with the author Eric Davis, calling it the feel-good episode of our time, or something like that. It's on Twitter. And it made me feel like it was very much the right thing to have already invited Eric Davis, author of the best-selling High Weirdness and host of the long-running Expanding Mind podcast, back to Desert Oracle Radio. Now, a lot of us writers have been sort of backbenched by the same situation that has put the whole world into lockdown. But Eric had already finished his audiobook recording of High Weirdness, and when that popped up on my audiobook list, I got it immediately. I recommend you do the same. We're going to talk about that and some other stuff. Let's welcome Eric Davis back to Desert Oracle Radio. Man, I, I'm always happy to be here. Just the name Desert Oracle makes me happy. That's good. Sometimes it's a great it, name. It makes me happy sometimes, too. Not always. Yeah, it's hard. You know, that whole thing about that work, you know, work doesn't matter how cool the thing is, how much you love it. It's just there's just this work thing that goes on. Part of reality, it seems. But I guess I'm blessed to have it when there's not a lot else going on. Now, I was a little surprised to read in your your recent newsletter that you had sort of briefly wigged out when the lockdown began. You know, I think of you as this cool and collected kind of Zen character. So uh, tell us about that and, and how you turned the corner. Yeah, that was interesting because, and I almost like I kind of, you know, you, you, when you put out these newsletters, there's, there's this weird balance of public and private. You're like, do I, what, how much dirty laundry do I want to air here? And so, it's, oh, you shouldn't talk about that because you know you, you got this, you know, this role or you have this mask or this avatar that you're projecting out in the world but i but it the reality is is that i was kind of impressed about the it was mostly in the kind of it was all about being prepared 
And then when I decided that I want, I needed some particular item and discovered that it was gone from the supermarket shelves, I, I, I got panicky. I mean, not like rolling on the ground panicky, but for me, panicky. Uh, and so I, I picked up some of the, the panic buy hoard stuff. Although I had been, I had been steadily buying stuff the, the, the previous week because I was kind of tuned into the whole thing. I was like, okay, now is the time to, you know, make sure the pantry's not bare and, you know, get ready with this and that. But once it kind of hit, and I was like, oh, oh, shoot, I don't have enough acetaminophen. Oh, it's gone from the shelves and you got to go hunt for it. And it, you backlogged in here. Da, da, da. That whole thing just kind of freaked me out, like that sense of the sort of unconscious way in which as a privileged American living in a glut, a glut city like San Francisco, how much you just unconsciously grow to expect certain things to be there. And when they're not, there's this deep programming assumption about the world that's shattered that's below conscious so even though consciously i go in there and go oh yeah the shelves might be bare when you actually see the shelves are bare for the thing that you want it's it was uh you know it was anxiety producing so i had to kind of wrestle with that anxiety and my whole attitude about this thing is to like at the very least try to see what's going on you know in myself in the world as much as I can create a workable model of it, take advantage of the rupture to see the workings of the machine uh, before it gets papered over with a new set of assumptions. And so like, rather than be like, oh God, okay, I got over that. All right, now I'm just gonna blah, blah, blah. I was really kind of sitting with the reality that, okay, I too can be infected by uh, unhelpful socially transmitted emotions and crowd behaviors just like everybody else we're, we're a social body uh, in, in some ways and um and that was kind of a, a stark reminder of that yeah we are not a nation that is really accustomed to consumer scarcity even though we're accustomed to a lot of unfair income distribution and a hundred other societal issues, but as far as the store, whether it be Walmart or Whole Foods, we're used to walking in there and that joint is full. Yeah. Once San Francisco went under lockdown, I did like you some early runs in January when it looked like it was starting to be a wave that was headed this way. And of course, I was way behind the boomers. The boomers had cleaned out all the toilet paper in the desert by about January 15th. Now, you can get outside. For me, as long as I have my walk every day, I can do it in the city, on the shore, whatever. But my practice, I guess, is I got to do my hour, two hours of walking in the desert every afternoon. And I kind of look forward to that in the back of my mind all day. And that would be a tough thing to cope with, like a lot of people in Wuhan had to do, where it's like, oh, you're not going outside at all for a while. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be very stir stir crazy. So yeah, I appreciate where where I'm at. You know, it's good walking on the beach over here. The beach is uh, really like just facing the ocean and just that you know the inhuman, the freshness. Uh, it's been pretty good, you know. I keep a, keep a, a getting afraid they're going to lock down the park and beach around here like they have in some places. That would really be a, a whole a whole other twist on the thing. But uh, yeah, it makes you realize how how vital it is just to be uh, to be outside to 
to be in, in some some manner of nature in, in amidst this kind of situation. It's just because it's such an interesting thing. It's it's just it's not like in our minds or imaginations the same way as other things. Like as Californians, we all think about earthquakes, and more recently, we've been thinking about fires and people who are in hurricane terror. We think about hurricanes, and you know, and then you think about human stuff. You know, mass murders and terrorist attacks and wars, and we all have a very rich kind of set of a, of imaginations and fantasies around those things. But we don't we don't really think about pandemics that much. I mean, it's just. You know, there's some media, there's some books, there's some films, but not that much when you think about how much they've been a part of human experience, at least since we started living in cities where a pandemic could come through and kill hundreds or thousands or more people. And it's so it's it's really interesting just like in the terms of the imaginary, like how we even kind of think about it. And on the one hand, you know, you got this this virus, you're not alive. Well, sort of, they, but they're agents. They're kind of like malware. They're like bad code that gets into social reality and then starts to hack it or whatever. And so there's something very technical about the situation, and it's all amplified by the media and like the global nature of, of travel and consumer goods and supply chain. So it, in a way, it's a very contemporary event. But at the same time, the idea of a pandemic or a plague or a miasma or like everybody's dying mysteriously, like it's so ancient. I mean, it's archaic stuff. It's way more archaic than terrorism, which is like 50 years old as a concept and maybe a couple hundred years old as a practice. But it's so archaic. And so there's a weird the, the, the feeling of time and the kind of symbolic narrative that we're in is, is very screwy. So it's very uncanny, the whole thing. Here's what I've been thinking about. So it's like clearly this is a time to consider mortality more directly, both your own, both the, and the sense of other people's and the sense of the kind of contingency of it. You don't know. Things can just happen. Nobody's at fault. Uh, and that, you know, life is very dangerous on some level and it's very unlikely in some ways. And that we, we've just been so cushioned and lucky you know, in the West over the last decades, this incredible period of relative peacetime. We, albeit, we've been ex exporting plenty of war and misery to to other folks, but you know, we just live in this kind of bubble. So, in a weird way, we have the opportunity to really look at that. But on the other hand, where our, our death denial is still kicking into overdrive, and even though I I I, I, the, I have absolutely no respect for the the sort of science denying a perspective or quote unquote skepticism of a lot of conservatives like, oh, it's not that bad. It's just the flu. We should go on to or this is a plot by the globalists to try to control the economy or whatever, all that kind of side of things. I, I have I have really very little respect for it on that level. On another level, some of that stuff, the conservatives saying, you know, they're kind of right. It's like, yeah, at a certain point, you know, people die. You know, it's like it's part of life. And so in a way where we get to watch both a sort of confrontation with the mortality, the uncontrollable mortality of existence before our very eyes. And because it's not that lethal, relatively, and because we're in full medical mode, the whole, the main narrative of like sort of death denial, which is, you know, core American uh, code, 
is is also full in full effect. Again, it's this kind of uncanny thing. It's like the Grim Reaper in or or Santa Muerta is in the room, but we're like wrapping her up with band-aids as fast as we can and, and spending, you know, notes through the internet about how to like make your own mask because you can put the mask over Santa Muerta and like keep her down. You know, as opposed to like also allowing ourselves to go, yes, life is very fragile on this planet and there are things that are going to get you no matter what you do and how much you plan and how much you try to control. And that's really kind of part of the weave. So yeah. it, it's a very strange, uh, but kind of amazing thing in a, in, in a way. I mean, that's a, it's a silver lining on a dark cloud, but there, there's some interesting things about the situation. Well, we are in a unique period in, in human history when something like this pandemic really becomes a choice of a society because they have the ability to almost limit death from something like this, which is incredible. We've got networked thermometers picking up fever clusters in Florida and well, it's a, it's a really interesting issue. I just I just finished my mailer today, uh, and I my book review was of this book called Die Wise by Jenkinson. He's like a palliative care guy, a, a consultant. He's been in what he calls the death trade for decades and super intense dude, like kind of a bard style, you know, like he's sort of like a wizened elder uh, in, in vibe, very, very sober, very poetic, very, very not uh, kind of therapy oriented or whatever. And it's a, it's a withering book, you know, a withering attack on how we die in America today and the and the, the how death denial works and how it gets programmed into the whole system and how you know people just get smothered away uh, from, from being able to stand up and kind of confront that's not even confront engage integrate accept celebrate understand you know connect with that side of uh, of life and so I had that also in my head when when I was kind of thinking about how we're thinking about the dead now you know we see these the image of Italy and there's like all these coffins and you know we don't usually see that kind of thing because we, we we're not allowed to see coffins coming back from from the war so we don't often see that kind of stuff and it's usually like oh it's a little exploitative blah 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 so we're we're so terrified by the by the you know by having Santa Muerta in your in your living room and you know it'd be nice I don't I wouldn't put any money on it but it would be nice if 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 one aspect of this is just more of a confrontation with how this goes and you're obviously it's tragic and you don't want it to happen but death is part of life and and so is a pandemic you know that's part of life part of what it means to have you know a, a meat meat suit <laughs> well buddhism <laughs> offers some nice kind of daily meditations you can do and yeah, there's def there's there's um, traditional like old school Theravadan meditations, and also it's you, you find it in in Tibet as well, where you know you're 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 meditating on your own body 
in various states of decay. And sometimes people would go into the charnel ground and you'd meditate on actual bodies lying there in their various states of decay. And they go, and the descriptions of these meditations have a kind of gruesome horror movie kind of quality to them because it's it's really about like actually engaging the horror of it, not just sort of an abstract idea, oh, I'm gonna end. It's like, no, this body that I cherish, it's all gonna rot and fall apart and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, well, that's, that's, pretty, that's, that's pretty dark. It's true. And, it's true. You know, so, there, yeah. so there's this this relationship to reality, and I think you know a lot of I don't know a lot of an artful life is a is a balance between a, a really clear-eyed realism, a clear-eyed cosmic realize, realism, with whatever you want to call it, a kind of poetry, a kind of romance, a kind of uh, you know dash. Uh, you know, the, a kind of a celebration of the absurdity of the situation within which you still love and have children and make art and, uh, you know, enjoy and all, you know, all those things. And it's a strange kind of kind of balance.
But I think sitting with that stuff, I mean, one thing it does is it, at least I would hope that it it's a little bit of a hedge against panic and fear. But that was sort of what I, my realization was not necessarily. You can sit with the stuff all you want. And even an extremely mild situation compared to the kinds of things that people confront every day in Syria or whatever, where you're like actual mayhem, actual death and destruction everywhere, collapse of social services, hunger, you know, uh, the, the water's poisoned. I mean, just, you know, nightmarish conditions and this tiny little comparatively little freak out about there's, you know, nothing on the, sh- there's no toilet paper on the shelves. You know, and then you're still like, oh, my God, like that was that didn't take very much. So that, that was a sober, uh, a sober recognition that I still have more meditating to do. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Boy, you know what? I, I, people are going to enjoy this one, but they're not going to call it the feel good podcast of the year. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember the other one being that that upbeat, but I guess I guess there was some some call to call to the weird you know a sort of a sort of more of more of the pluck uh s- side of the equation but uh um but you know in other ways I, I, I'm, you know, I'm feeling pretty good so uh you know who knows who yeah knows? now that 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 one come things were certainly uneasy and the stress fractures were visible and everything whenever we did that about i don't know four five six months ago yeah, but there was a a sense uh, from talking stuff out and recognizing it and not trying to file away your fears, your real fears about things going on. That I do think is uh, very helpful. Let me tell you something that came up when I was I've been uh, I've been listening to high weirdness while I'm walking. And I got to, I'm in the last third now, since you didn't read the footnotes, I'm in my last third. (laughs) That's true. And so this is the, the Philip K. Dick section, and this is something I read, I remember reading it in the hardback, and then I just sort of forgot it. And I've been digging out a lot of books in my new office where I'm doing the the radio show now and one of the books I pulled out was the the Carl Jung book on the the archetypes and, which one uh the the archetypes in the collective unconscious okay yeah sure and yeah I've read it before I do a lot of skimming when I read things that aren't narrative but this jumped out at me because I had just heard you reading the part about an early experience at Philip K. Dick. And I'm sure you or some of your co-editors on the Exegesis or something have addressed this already. But there's this thing in the archetypes and the collective unconscious about a brother Klaus in Germany. And he had an experience. He became a, a saint. He was a medieval German illiterate monk. 
and it's, he had this experience that he then painted this kind of circle of the trinity sort of thing but the original experience I'm reading from it here was entirely different in his ecstasy there was revealed to brother Klaus a sight so terrible and he was changed by it so much indeed that people were terrified and felt afraid for him Uh, all who came to him were filled with terror at the first glance the cause of this he himself used to say that he had seen a piercing light in the night sky resembling a human face at the sight of it he feared his heart would burst into little pieces and when I was hearing you describe the face in the sky that Philip K. Dick saw I believe in Marin. I thought, my God, that's that sounds like the same thing. This terrifying face that just appears and hangs in the sky, and you have to deal with that. Now, uh, PKD went to his priest, and the priest said it was Satan. Now, this guy talked to the abbot and other friars and brothers. And he was convinced that the face was actually the Trinity. Even though it scared him nearly to death, and it clearly was this evil face. And I was wondering if Philip K. Dick had come across that before, because so much of your story about him is the way that he integrated religious text into his own experiences own experiences well that's a good question i mean there's a pretty good there's some good evidence that right around the time that he uh became an episcopal or got uh baptized in the episcopal church and went you know which was right around the time of that slot-eyed face vision that he was also reading jung and that he may have sort of first stumbled across basic Gnostic ideas, including the idea of a lower evil god or, or a demiurge uh, in, in Jung. And he, he was certainly already a big reader of Jung um, by that time in his life. He probably started in the late 19. 19- uh, 50s, but certainly by the early 60s, he was reading Jung talking about the Jing. He was reading uh, Secret of the Golden Flower. He was reading books on archetypes. So it would not surprise me if he if he came across uh, that little that little nugget. And one of the things that's interesting about that whole dynamic, that whole dialectic, is like this question of whether there's something terrifying in the sacred. And the idea of the sacred as a kind of anthropological category, like a way that you might say that, you know, every society has their own kind of idea of the sacred. And it's different a little bit than the holy. It's different than the good. Uh, And the sacred often has a kind of element of fear or even terror in it. And this was Rudolf Otto's famous idea about the. the mysterium tremendum that there's something in it that is both you know fascinating and frightening and 
I think that's a really interesting way of looking at the scary parts of, of life too. That they they offer a kind of uh, portal into an encounter with reality that that has those dimensions in it, but is not simply that level. So it's not simply evil or terrifying or horrifying. It's kind of a, a mix or a weave. And so you can imagine how, you know, even a, a terrifying face could be part of a religious vision. And even that, and Dick had that kind of ambi- ambivalence in him. You know, that's one of the strange things about the book he wrote, or one of the books he wrote after his newfound Christianity, when he was seemed to be happiest in the church. It didn't take him very long to stop being a kind of normal church-going dude, although he never stopped saying he was an Episcopalian and a Christian, that he, uh, that he, the book he wrote, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, which I, I've been thinking about a lot lately, I might even do like a reading group uh, with it or something, because it's just so relevant, and it's dark. It's, it's, a, it's a dystopian future, things are really hot, the drugs are, are you know, taken over by corporations and it's a you know it's a it's kind of a grim tale but one of the things that's funny is that he's he seems to be parodying the ideas of the mass and transubstantiation through his portrait of these martian colonists taking drugs and entering into these virtual realities that are based on like ken and barbie doll uh california uh, commercial constructs and it's like how, why is how is he doing this it's like he needs to mock and and even demonize the very religious symbols that in another part of his life he's he's heartily embracing uh and there's something about that ambivalence that's really uh deep in his work and and maybe even in the modern religious imagination that we somehow need that dark side to to make it real yeah that that stuff sunk in really deeply with me and i think it helped me get over kind of a 80s sort of dismissal of a kind of a cynical dismissal of of aspects of consumerism and culture that seemed especially crass and gross the idea that within these things are going to be found the same sorts of wish fulfillment and kind of uh, religious looking forward to paradise, depending on your faith, that people had in everywhere from early Christianity to the Middle Ages, through the plagues, like we were talking about, and that there was some... some deeper kind of context to these things that requires a little more than just dismissal and cynicism about them and putting what they take they take the drugs and they go into a trance and fall over drooling and then they're in like this VR world where they're in Malibu Barbie Mustangs on the beach in LA and everything it's That's a, it. Yeah, it's a it's a very uh, 
it might be a much more realistic view of a paradise, especially in America, than what's said in the New Testament with the streets of gold and the angels singing and everything. Yeah, another interesting thing about the Three Stigmata that I think about a lot is one of the sort of subplots is about how there are people who have psychic powers and there's a certain there's sort of a drug regimen that you can go through or a, a medical procedure that that expands your psychic powers but all of the the use that people make of these things is to just further the the competitive a- advantage of the corporations so you have this model of and it's it's a really good if if somewhat bleak lesson for you know our days now when there's this kind of i don't know there's this sort of sense that there's something really productive in visionary states and psychedelic experiences and meditation and trance and all of these these tools that are that are available for the kind of modern self and he just gives a very clear-eyed view of how societies when their priorities are screwed will appropriate these seemingly transcendental or or visionary or even saint-like capacities and sort of bring them into a much more recognizable kind of uh, typical situation. So it's a it's a it's a good lesson if uh, if not again the most uh, uh, sparkly eyed. <laughs> oh yeah, like, like microdosing in Silicon Valley, right? To get those sales up, you need some clarity. <laughs> well, if you do that as some kind of public reading group, let me know and I'll post it up. I'm sure there are people who have the book on the shelves or could get it from one of their local booksellers that's doing delivery and that that would be interesting before we have to let you go because they only give us so much time otherwise i just talk just talk about this stuff all day (laughs) this audio book you did is really an impressive production Authors are often told not to do their own audiobooks, even if they have broadcasting or podcasting or public speaking or whatever, because for whatever reason, publishers have their ideas about how these things should be done. I thought the way you did yours, and I still think it, is very entertaining. It, for kind of like a unschooled person like myself just like hearing a lot of weird terms spoken i'd never heard some of those words spoken out loud before and you know they have a a a beautiful rhythm and sound to them that gives a lot more resonance to the ideas and then you did something that i thought was both outrageous and completely entertaining to deal with a problem that arises for any audiobook reader and many people have different ways to do it but dealing with quotes so when i first got to the part where you quote a kind of well-known french ufo researcher <laughs> i just about <laughs> lost it yeah 
Yeah, and that was a, that was a silly decision, and we stopped in the when in the recording, and I talked to because I had an engineer for the whole time, and they they were there were a couple a couple of different guys, and they were they were all really cool, but a couple one in particular was the main guy I worked with was was really good, and you know and helped. They would sit there and they'd hunt for the pronunciations of words because a lot of those words I don't know how to pronounce. So like you know I'm the same thing. I'm just a reader, so we'd stop and I go I don't know how to say that, and we'd have to go online, and they were they were pretty good at it. they they were pretty skilled at searching for pronunciations of obscure words and the the company that produced it does a lot of academic books so that that's a particular kind of issue for them and then when i came to the quotes i was like oh man that's so silly and they're like yeah but come on i mean like you know make play have, have some fun with it you know and uh you're just glad i didn't try to do the german ones because i started to try to do those and i'm like no way man this is this is not this is it's bad enough with the the kind of like uh slight Terrence, you know, and I didn't want to like go overboard with the Terrence, but I had to do a little bit of it or it just didn't make sense. And, um, you know, so uh, uh, I'm glad that you thought it was at least funny. <laughs> oh, I loved it. I loved it. And it it really kind of takes the, the wind out of some of Dick's more, I don't know, more kind of self-absorbed quotes. When you do this, it, what it's like a Midwestern voice. Yeah, the the oh when when I do uh, uh, dicks when yeah. I do, when I do well PKD has actually got an interesting voice. You know, having heard a lot of his recordings, and he has this kind of like he's got marbles in his in his mouth, and he hits the R's really hard, and that's actually a California accent. Like you think we think of California as not really having an accent, and I think probably now it mostly doesn't. But if you listen to older Californians, and he is certainly an older Californian, though he wasn't born here, but uh, lived his whole life here. One of one feature of of uh, the accent is ours. I drive a car. Like it's the opposite of like Boston on the other side of the country. You, you drive a car. Yeah, you kind of replace it with a with a H. Which it with an A H. But but uh, in California. It's like got this like marbles, very, you know, rah, rah. and you can hear that in, in Dick's uh, language. So that was sort of what I was kind of <laughs> fasting, uh, doing my best, you know, uh, because, because then you start listening to like other people do it. And like a lot of a lot of readers don't have very good accents. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I have a friend, a British friend, and, and I, I always thought I did like, a, you know, some British accents. OK, but she just would I try one in front of her and she would just look at me and just shake her head like like I was a sad and pathetic man. So I tried to make it silly rather than authentic because I would fail authentic. So just sort of make it fun. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's a, it's a great form of audio block quote. Yeah. <laughs> and if it ever comes up, you know, maybe you can uh, uh, do some PKD audio books. Yeah. That that'd be fun to hear. All right, oh, I, I, I'd like to, I'd love to do more of this stuff. I really enjoy doing the doing the reading. Is your are you thinking about bringing the podcast back now that things have changed a little bit? Yeah, I'm still I'm still sneaking up on it. You know, I'm just not sure what I want to do exactly, and and uh, and yeah, but I it, it it's obviously you know I think the world. In ahead of us is going to be obviously more virtual and more even more media through the internet and 
um, I, you know, I still really believe in the in the podcast form, but I'm just a little bit unclear about how I want to structure it and what I what kind of hamster wheel I want to build for myself, basically. Yeah, I got my newsletter from uh, Nick Cave today. Uh, right, oh, cool! Right after yours, and he he said some people were asking, "What are you going to do?" And he said, as soon as it started, he got like twenty project ideas from his manager and his bandmates and things like that. And he had always gone to creativity in a crisis, but for this one, he said he's just going to kind of chill for a little while. Yep kind of watch and learn because we're seeing something that even though there are parallels there aren't parallels for for our life in america in this era so it's a it's a new time yeah i i agree with that with that perspective i think it's or another way that i've been is that while i'm i'm kind of interested in my own meaning making like my own creativity and i have luck i'm luckily i have some writing projects that i can kind of um, so I can focus my mind. It's, it's, it's hard to just say, oh, it's finally time to read Proust. You know, it's just it's a little bit too chaotic, even though there's a lot of time. Um, uh, but I'm doing a lot of, you know, kind of more focused uh, research projects, which is, you know, a good way to do it. But I'm I'm kind of more interesting in just paying attention to how meaning making happens, like how how other people do it or how collectives do it or how conversations do it. So rather than feeling like like this compulsion to fill up the void with my own meaning making, I'm kind of more just sort of tapping into what does it mean to make meaning and and when when we do it, how we do it, why we do it. Do we do it together? Do we do it separately and then consume it with other people? And you know, so uh, it's that that in a way is like kind of how I'm I'm looking at things. So I think I think uh, as as is often the case, Nick Cave is right on the money in this in this one. I think that's it, Eric. Great. Oh, I love that. I'm sorry, I went over 14 minutes from when I was supposed to end. But <laughs> you were right. You were you were rolling. <laughs> there we had it. It often happens. All right. Well, uh, stay safe up there, as banal as that may sound. Uh, it's probably good advice right now. I'm going to start going out with a with a bandana and my, my straw hat, like some kind of thir- third-hand Jesse James character. Coming into the Vons, you know. It's it's a good it's a good uh, it's a good look. It's yeah, an important it's, look. It's recommended now, and since I don't have yep. a sewing machine, I'm not going to be able to make myself a you know cute little mask out of a tea towel or whatever. Yep, I'm I'm pulling the bandana myself. Oh, good, good, very Burning Man. Very Burning Man. Yeah, just treat it like Burning Man. You're going out to a harsh environment. You got to be prepared for, and you can't really trust the mind frame of any of the people you run into. <laughs> Burning Man turned out to be college for the year 2020. <laughs> Who knew? All right, man. Will you stay safe? You too. Thanks, Eric.
Thanks to our guest, Eric Davis, as Eric with a K. Check out High Weirdness and his podcast, Expanding Mind. Thanks, as always, to our own Red, Blue, Black, Silver and Joshua Tree for the musical soundscapes you heard on this hour-long program. Come see us at DesertOracle.com. This is Desert Oracle Radio. We broadcast from Joshua Tree every Friday night, 10 p.m. to 11 p.m., and you can get our podcast through all the usual devices you have with you in your home during this lockdown. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, etc., But radio is the best. Free and pure on the wings of the electromagnetic spectrum. They can't track what you listen to when you're listening to a battery-powered AM radio in your secret shack on the mountainside. You know that? Well, keep it in mind. We need to keep these things in mind. We've got a Patreon set up as well, and I sincerely appreciate those of you who contribute to the operation out here. Become a patron of Desert Oracle for a couple of bucks a month, and we'll keep broadcasting, narrowcasting, podcasting, godcasting. We do it all. Thanks to each and every one of you out there tonight for listening, for being a supporter of the show, whatever way you can. These are weird times, and there's no getting around it. But do not despair. Do not fall into despair. Be careful best you can. Hold tight. But be thinking about the other side. The other side is not going to be normal, not for most of us, but that doesn't mean life needs to be ugly and sad. Think like a Viking. Think like you got a Molotov cocktail. We may all have to do things we haven't really considered doing before. Think about where you'll be on the other side. Think about making it good. Making your life more about your friends and your family and your neighbors, the people you love, the things you love to do, the people who bring some warmth and light into your life, and how the other side of all this can be more about that and less about taking orders from the people who have taken nearly everything for themselves. That's not normal, and it shall not be for long. For the first shall become last, 
good night from the voice of the desert.